And we'll read this morning from John chapter 14, beginning at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not behold him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me. Because I live, you shall live also. In that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me and shall, shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what? Then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced, because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes to pass that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let's go from here. This is God's holy word. Be seated. Last Sunday, we, we looked at, uh, well, we actually launched our series in the book of Acts um, called You Will Be My Witnesses, and uh, we couldn't get past verse 1. Um, why is that funny? Um, yeah, some of the things that we talked about, uh, we talked about the author, Luke, and his reader, Theophilus, and we talked about um, how the gospel ministry was really the beginning of Jesus' works and teachings. Which I thought was just a really cool thing that Luke slipped into there. We talked about um, many of the things that the Lord did uh, in the early church, uh, which was what Luke was referring to to some degree. We talked about kind of that first century church and then some of the things that the Lord has done throughout all the centuries. And then we talked about some of the things that he's doing today and how he's still saving sinners, how he intercedes for his, his people, how he's pouring out power in the world. Um, into his people for the gospel, how he's ruling and reigning from the throne of grace, and how he's still teaching through faithful ministers of the gospel. Those are pretty much the things that we covered last week, but uh, what a blessing it'd be if I could preach a sermon in two seconds like I just did right now. It took me a dang hour to get through all that stuff last week, but uh, glory to God. 
This morning, we're going to be focusing on verses 2 to 5. That's a huge section. It's just massive. It's four verses. (laughs) I I, I was going to try to teach all the way through 11, and uh, nah, it just didn't happen. So, um, yeah, so we're going to be looking at 2 to 5 in chapter 1. And in our text, we're going to discover really four sort of key things that Jesus did to prepare his disciples to be witnesses in the world. Um, I will identify each of them as we move through the text, and uh, I'd like to read our section first and then kind of pray again, and, and then we'll begin to, I used to say in junior high ministry, we'll dissect it, like a little froggy, <laughs> there's the heart, you know, we'll just, that was like Spongebob right there, <laughs> we'll, we'll just kind of dissect the word, we'll kind of look into it and see, see what God has for us today, I'm pretty pumped about that, but let's look at... Um, Acts 1, and I'm going to actually start at verse 1 again, just to kind of frame it. Um, We've already pretty much covered it, but we're going to look at Acts 1, 1 to 5. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Lord, we need you uh, during these times, Lord, in all times, but most particularly when we are working through your Scripture and looking at your Scripture and studying your Scripture and applying your Scripture and trying to live out your Scripture. And God, I I, I pray now through your grace, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, uh, that you would put away with all the distractions of this world, just the things that... um, Ah, they just sort of get in the way. You know, just those things of life, Father, jobs and money and, and, and relational things and those sorts of things. God, this is a, a holy moment that we have been given, a holy moment that has been ordained this Sabbath day that we could come and be with one another and hear from you. And so help us to not be distracted. Open our minds and hearts to your truth, Lord. Help us to be transformed by the power of your word and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, help us to live differently from this moment forward, God. We cry out to you in humility. Come and speak to us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. In verse 2, we see the first key thing that Jesus did to prepare his disciples to be his witnesses in the world. And that thing is he gave commands through the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, when I read that, and that's in verse 2, when I read that, I was like, what commands did he give? I started thinking about the law and the Ten Commandments. I started thinking about the royal law, you know, love God, love people. Those are the highest things. If you do those two things, then all of the law is is sort of um, fulfilled in those things. What commands were they? And what I discovered through study is that these are really specific things um, that he commanded in the final weeks uh, before he 
um, basically ascended. And so that's what these things are. Now, um, if you have a, what's called a reference Bible, um, you know, like, like I have a reference Bible, and it's, what it has is it has all these little letters and numbers and stuff, or letters actually, next to words and next to phrases, and then it has these columns uh, where those letters are, and that shows where your verse is chain-linked to something else, some other context somewhere where it was said the same way somewhere else or in a similar way. If you have a study Bible and uh, or a, a reference Bible, if you look under uh, the commands section there in it, you'll find that your, the translators have actually pointed you to what he's referring to. That's pretty much how you use a reference Bible. I mean, if you ever have a question, like, I wonder what he's referring to you right now. If you have a reference Bible, look and see if it's linked to somewhere else, because then you'll find the answer. And so that's just like Bible study 101, amen? So what I did was I kind of looked in my little deal there, and it, and it pointed me to several verses that are what he's referring to. These would be the verses that, that the commands are laid in, and, and one would be Acts 10.42. Jesus commanded us, he's talking to the disciples or the future apostles, to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Mark 16, 15 is another one. And some of your reference Bibles might have more references than this. Mine isn't the most exhaustive, but there's some good reference here. Mark 16, 15, and he said to them again, Jesus is saying this, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Is what he said. And then Luke 24, 47, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the name of Jesus to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And then John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So what did Jesus command that they do prior to his ascension in an effort to equip them to go out and do the ministry of the gospel? He called them to preach that Jesus has been the appointed judge over all people, to proclaim the gospel to everyone everywhere, to proclaim to the nations beginning in Jerusalem that repentance and forgiveness are in the name of Jesus. And then he also said to, for them to proclaim the gospel in peace. He said, the Father sent me in peace. I'm sending you in peace, which pretty much, anni- pretty much annihilates the whole idea of the Crusades that came later, right, and everything else, this whole idea of bringing the gospel to the world with a sword, that just is not the gospel, and that's not at all what Jesus commanded that these these men do. He says, man, I came in peace, and so I want you to take the message that I've trained you with and taught you to go out in the same manner, in the vein of peace. The gospel is a message of peace. Those are the things that he commanded them to do in the final weeks uh, before he ascended. Now, something really, really interesting in that verse. Verse 2, Luke said that Jesus gave them commands through the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is the decipherer of God's truth and the deliverer of God's power. The Bible teaches that the truth of God cannot be understood without the Spirit of God because it is spiritually discerned. That's 1 Corinthians 2.14. It is the Holy Spirit that reveals God's truth to people. Without His work, there is no understanding. The Bible also shows how the Holy Spirit brings divine power down from heaven. On the day of Pentecost, that wonderful day, 
the Holy Spirit blasted into a room like a mighty rushing wind, and then He filled 120 people with His divine presence and power. That's Acts 2.1. We're going to study that. I can't wait to study that. So what happened in our text appears to be very similar to what happened back in John 20, 21 to 22. In that passage, it says that Jesus breathed out the Holy Spirit onto the disciples. Let's take a look at it, John 20, 21 to 22. You can turn there if you'd like. At some point in the future, we'll put verses up on the screens and all that. And I like all that, but you know what that really does? That really keeps people from looking in their Bibles. It really keeps people from learning where stuff is in their Bibles. If we're just always feeding the sheep in that way and providing everything for it, we've got to train you guys to be self-feeders too at the same time. And so that's one reason why we don't have it on there. And plus, the projector would be blinding me right now. So John 20, 21 to 22. <laughs> I got to throw that stupid stuff in there. Jesus, listen to this. This is so amazing. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Okay, here's where he told them this. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now listen to this. It says in verse 22, and when he had said this, what does it say? He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. How cool is that? That's just neat. I mean, for me, that just gets the wheels turning. Okay, what, what's going on here? What it is, is Jesus gave the disciples commands through the Holy Spirit, which means that He breathed out a special anointing of the Spirit on them so that they could understand what He had commanded and so that they would have the power to obey. And this is what's so amazing about this. This was a temporary anointing which would last until the day of Pentecost. This is a temporary anointing that He put on them. When He's giving these commands to them before he ascends and before the day of Pentecost, at some point here, he breathes out the Spirit on them so that they can, what, understand, because that's what the Spirit does. It discerns the truth to us, and what, give them the power to obey, because that's what the Holy Spirit does. It gives us power to obey. Without the Spirit, there's no obedience. And so he gives them this special sort of temporary anointing, which is awesome. Now, this makes incredible sense when you consider how the Holy Spirit worked during the Old Testament period and pretty much before the ascension or pretty much before the day of Pentecost. All throughout the Old Testament scriptures, we see examples of how God put His Spirit into kings, generals, and prophets so that they could do His will. And many times the Spirit would depart from them after the work had been completed or after they blew it big time. Do you remember David's cry, don't take your spirit from me after he sinned with Bathsheba? Now, this is what's so awesome, is that the Holy Spirit would come, and He would come temporarily into people's lives to fulfill God's will. He would, came and actually blessed and anointed King Saul, and then King Saul completely blew it. And then what did God do? He pulled His Spirit from Saul. And then Saul's leadership ended shortly after that, and he put his spirit on David. And David came in and started leading Israel, greatest king Israel ever had, next to Jesus Christ. And so imagine this here. The spirit has always been sort of a temporary, he's always operated within these temporary confines by God's design, by his providential design. He comes, he anoints, he moves on, and whatever. It's never kind of a permanent thing throughout all of the Old Testament before Pentecost. Amazing stuff here, amazing stuff. But now things would forever change for the sons and daughters of God at Pentecost. It would be there that the Spirit would not only descend upon God's children, but that He would remain upon them. And so Jesus gave the disciples a temporary filling of the Spirit to sustain and carry them through until the day of Pentecost. 
I love how John Piper put it in his commentary on this text. He said, it was through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that Jesus spoke and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that the disciples received the word of commission. The Spirit helped them in those days before Pentecost to understand the command, to accept the command, and to be glad with the command. Isn't that cool? He breathed out the Spirit on them. He gave them commands and breathed out the Spirit so that what? They could comprehend and understand and what? So that they'd have the power through the Holy Spirit to obey. And now this is what's so stinking amazing about this. And this is what just gets me, ooh, I got to get the Kleenex box out because it makes me want to weep. What we see in that little phrase that he gave the commands through the Spirit as we see the love, grace, mercy, and compassion of Jesus Christ. Because what had happened just prior to him and this experience with them, this 40-day period, what had happened? He had been crucified on a cross and buried in a tomb. And that was the most devastating thing that the disciples had experienced yet. Because in their minds, the Savior was gone. They, had, they couldn't put it all together. They had, some, he, they had been taught that Jesus would come back. But for the most part, they didn't understand those things until he came back and convinced them that he was back. But for the most part, they had just gone through the worst imaginable thing. The worst imaginable thing. Their Lord and Savior, the one who walked with them for three, three and a half years, taught them, loved them, protected them, cared for them, fed them, guarded them, trained them. He had been removed from them, and this was a devastating thing for them. And what did they do during the time that he was gone? They sat around in a room and moped and acted like the whole world had ended. How about those disciples on the road to Emmaus? What were they doing? Man, we almost had it. Gee, I thought he was who he said he was. Jesus is walking with them. <laughs> you know, right? Man, that'd be weird, huh? So, so what, what I'm saying is, is that Jesus giving them a temporary anointing, it represents his love and grace towards them and his care to get them through to the day of Pentecost when everything would change forever. He's about to leave them again. He's about to ascend and, you know, I don't know, just float up. It says the cloud came down. It wasn't like a goose or anything. I mean, he just, he just went up. I mean, and now they're going, and we have no idea when he's coming back. I mean, this is something that they're about to experience. The, the fellowship that they had with him that was so sweet was kind of lost when he went into the tomb for three days, and then, and then it was regained when he returned, and, and now he's going to leave again. And so what does he do? He lovingly breathes out the Spirit on them to give them power, to give them hope, to get them through for about 10 days, because that's when the day of Pentecost came. Isn't that just beautiful how Jesus does that? He, he knows what we need, and he gives us what we need to move on and to keep plowing forward. And he knows that these guys are going to be devastated again when he goes off into glory. And what does he do? He gives them something to carry them over, his very spirit. I love that. I think that's what it represents too. Yeah, he's, he's equipping and he's giving commands and all that, but he's also, he knows that he's leaving again and he knows how devastated they'll be and how shocked they'll be and how sad they'll be. And so he, in his great mercy and grace, gives them an unction of the Spirit to get them through. I love it. Isn't that cool? I think that's what it is in some way. <clears throat> and He does the same thing for us, does He not? Aren't there just times where life just beats the snot out of you? Just stuff happens, whether it be relational or work-related or just, just even physical ailments, depression and those kinds of things. I wrestled with that stuff for 10 years. It was the worst part of my life. I wanted to kill myself. And I've just found that Christ, He comes and he, he, he helps us in those moments. 
And this is what he did here in our text. He gave them commands. He breathed out the Spirit on them so that they could obey and understand and so that they would be um, carried over in a way for the next 10 days, that they would make it, that they would have the strength to get through as Jesus begins to do some other things. The second key thing that Jesus did to prepare his disciples is in verse 3, and that is, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Check out some of the passages that show how Jesus presented himself to them after the resurrection. Luke 24, 36, as they were talking about what had happened, these are the disciples that are gathered and talking about the cross and they're talking about, you know, man, I can't believe what happened. This stinks. He's gone. Ah, woo, you know, they're tweaking out about it. It says, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. I mean, you're just sitting there moping, oh man, this stinks. Peace to you. Huh? huh? Right? I mean, can you imagine what that must have been like? This is, this is a moment where Jesus reveals himself to them in his resurrected body. He's alive. He's not in the tomb. Luke 24, 43 says he ate fish with them. Long John Silver's right there. Some hush puppies, you know, some batter dipped goodness or not goodness. I mean, he ate with them. Yeah, ghosts don't eat with people. I've watched paranormal activity. They jack you up. They don't come in and go, hey, who's got some pizza, you know? Who's got some cod? He, he ate fish with them. Acts 10, 40 to 41, and that movie was dumb, by the way. Acts 10, 40 to 41, but God raised Jesus on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people at that point, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. And then it says, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Well, he came and had meals with them. He had fish. Acts 13, 31, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up from uh, come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. I mean, look at it. He's coming and coming. He's coming and interacting with them and showing himself to them. Luke 24, 31, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon, Simon Peter, one of the disciples. You know, Jesus, after his resurrection, kept coming back to them and coming back to them. And coming back to him, he ate and drank with them. He gave them commands. He trained them. He taught them. He loved them. He cared for them. He encouraged them. The scriptures also say that Jesus presented himself to others, not just them. 1 Corinthians 15, 5 to 7 says, And that Jesus appeared to Cephas, that Simon Peter again, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. 500 people. I don't know what they were doing. If maybe they were all scattered and Jesus appeared to each one of them and he divided himself somehow, miraculous thing. Or maybe there was a bunch of people gathered in one place and, you know, there was a keynote speaker and John Piper was on stage and then Jesus walked in and John Piper said, my bad. And he got off stage and Jesus went up and talked to 500 people. I don't know how it went down. But he appeared to 500 people. More than 500 people, it actually says. And it says most of them who are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. I mean, Jesus kept coming back and back and back. Now, verse 3 says that Jesus did this over a period of 40 days. For 40 days, he came back and 
showed himself to them and revealed himself to them and presented himself to them alive and ate with them and did these things. Now, why did he come back over and over and over? Because some of them doubted that it was really him. Matthew 28, 17. And when they had saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. John 20, 24 to 29. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came originally the first time right after his resurrection. And so uh, the disciples had told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side where that spirit run through, I will never, I will never believe until I can do those things. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. This went on for 40 days. 40 days, Jesus would come back and present himself to this group of men and to others. Why? Because on Tuesday, they believed. And then on Wednesday, I don't know. Are you sure? Over and over, back and forth, up and down. I'm in, I'm out. I believe, I'm not sure. Oh, how feeble and finicky the human heart is. Verse 3, and the passages I read basically illustrate something very important. They illustrate our propensity to doubt and to disbelieve. Don't they? What more does God have to do? You've, you've got all of creation, it says in Romans, that testifies to his everlasting existence, that all of it came through him. The human body is so complex. The human eye, the human finger. It's just amazing that we would believe the lie that says that all of this came from nothing. You know what nothing produces? Nothing. I don't know what more God has to do. And, and, you know, I know what he had to do for me. He basically had to come into me and save me because my heart was so calloused against him. And, and just, I, I would not believe. I chose not to believe. I will not believe it. My obstinance towards him. And he came and convinced me. Once and for all, I have not doubted who God is or who Christ is. I don't doubt those things anymore. Sometimes I doubt other things, smaller things or whatever, but I have no doubt in who Jesus says he is and what he's done. But he had to come back to these men over and over, the men that he was with in person for over three years. It's me. Look, see the hole? Touch it. Now, I often criticize these guys for that, but they're no different than me. They're no different from you. They're no different from, from this guy or our neighbor from anyone else. He came back over and over and over for 40 days, working to convince them that he had come back, that he was alive, 
It actually got to the point with the disciples where Jesus blew them out. Mark 16, 14 says, Jesus rebuked the disciples for their unbelief and hardness of heart. I kind of have a feeling that was like, what more is it going to take? What more do I need to do? It is me. I have come back. What a stark contrast between what happened with Saul of Tarsus and what happened with these men, right? He gets blinded. He falls off a horse. Jesus speaks to him. He goes, Lord! (laughs) He's just convinced in a nanosecond. Has that ever happened to you? Do you have doubts? You ever been rebuked by the Lord for your unbelief? It's happened to me, just so you know. I really don't doubt in who Jesus is and who He says He is, but sometimes I doubt in His provision. Sometimes I doubt in His forgiveness in some ways. I feel like just such a turd. I'm just such a wicked sinner. And, and the thing that I ask myself is, how could you love this Turd with feet, with Reeboks. You know, I doubt those things. I, d- I doubt some of the promises that he's made. You know, he's, he has said these things. I, I promise to love you and to never leave you or to forsake you. And sometimes I feel alone. We all experience that. And it's pretty normal. We have flesh. But the thing is with Jesus, it's so stinking amazing is he doesn't stop coming and presenting. Right? You could just, oh, I just don't get it. And he just keeps coming and coming and coming. He is a relentless pursuer of the human soul. In doubt, out of doubt, whatever, he is there and he comes. I love him for it. I've always loved that passage where that Man came to Jesus and asked if he would cast an unclean spirit out of his son. The demon would basically, you know, fire up some sort of a seizure or something whenever the kid was by a body of water or by a fire, literally. The text says that, you know, the spirit would throw this kid. He would have a seizure and it would throw him into a fire, into a campfire. The roasting marshmallows. Next thing you know, Jimmy's rolling around with the timbers. What are you doing, kid? Right? I mean, can you imagine... Can you imagine just walking along a canal? We have a ton of them here. and blah, 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 You know? Oh, man, I got to go back in there. Get all hung up on a shopping cart, you know, and get them out of there. I mean, this was a, this was a serious thing here that was happening. I make it, I downplay it with the stupid humor. But, I mean, literally, this kid was, he had this unclean spirit in him. And, and you know, how did that affect their camping trips? We're going to have a fireless fire today. Right? Bring a space heater with a thousand foot cord. I mean, I don't know what they did. But... <laughs> it was terrible. And this man comes to Jesus and he pleads and he pleads and he pleads with him. And Jesus says, do you believe? And he says, I do, but I got issues, man. Help my unbelief, please. Well, I'll go ahead and take care of your unbelief. Go home. Your kid's well. He goes home and little Jimmy's not rolling around with the timbers. He's in his right mind. The spirit is gone. The Bible says that Jesus healed the boy. I bet that cured that father's disbelief, didn't it? Probably two weeks later, he was going, I don't know. (laughs) Did he really heal him? I'm just waiting. Stay away from the pool, Jimmy. (laughs) 
Jesus worked for 40 days to cure the disciples' unbelief. He presented himself to them over and over and over. Why? Because they had to become convinced that Jesus was alive before they could go out and be sent out to be his witnesses. You know, one thing that will ruin your witness in this world is not being certain of who Jesus is and what he said and what he's done. What kind of witness is that? You know? Yeah, Jesus, he did all this stuff. Really? Blah, 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 blah. Uh, yeah. Jesus equipped them through commands and through breathing the Holy Spirit on them and by proving to them that he was alive. The third thing that Jesus did to prepare them was he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. That's at the end of verse 3. This is huge. Kingdom of God has to be one of the most misunderstood and abused doctrines in Christianity. We've got so many conflicting views of what it is, and we're so goofed up on it, and we've got to spend a few minutes talking about it so we can get some clarity. Maybe, maybe it's because it seems like it's a daunting topic. It does, doesn't it? Like the kingdom of God, that doesn't sound like, oh, yeah, it's this. I mean, that's like, really? <clears throat> Most Christians today agree that the kingdom of God is a central theme in the New Testament and the main theme of the Gospels or in the Gospels. I mean, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God more than any other subject or topic. But people can't agree on what the kingdom means. There are three main views of the kingdom out there. Together, they give a good definition of the kingdom. Separate, they present a skewed picture of the kingdom. And I think that's the problem. We don't often see the kingdom with a holistic view. We look at little aspects of it, and so that's what we believe about it, and that's what we tout and tell people and teach people about, and it's not a full view of what it is. We do the same thing with the gospel. We talk about the cross all the time, but we never talk about the resurrection. We talk about the cross all the time, but we never talk about the perfect life that Jesus lived so he could impart his perfect righteousness to you. We never talk about it in a whole view. And guess what? We need to start doing that because we're screwing things up and we're confusing people about stuff. There's three views of the kingdom, and, and everyone gets in one camp. It's this. It's this. It's this. No, it's all of it together. The first view of the kingdom is the ethical view. According to this view, the kingdom is about living rightly. It's about ethics. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's love your enemies. Forgive those who sin against you. Don't be judgmental. Give to the poor. Don't commit adultery. Welcome the outcast. This is the view of the old theological liberals and many of the new emergent church leaders. They're really pushing this whole ethical view of the kingdom. The kingdom of God means living out God's peace or God's shalom on earth. And that's not an incorrect view of the kingdom. It's just not complete. The kingdom of God does not mean living a certain way and enjoying a peace and harmony and justice. It, the kingdom of God does mean that. It does mean, I'm sorry, it does mean living a certain way and enjoying a peace and harmony and justice that only Christ can bring. But that's not all that the kingdom brings. If the kingdom is only a message about ethics, there's no good news because the utopia isn't coming in this age and we can't keep the Sermon on the Mount perfectly can we are you kidding me have you ever read the beatitudes wow so the kingdom is ethics but it's more than ethics view two the second view of the kingdom is the experiential view according to this view the kingdom is about what's in your heart 
To receive the kingdom of God, you must be like a little child, Mark 10, 15. This is the pietistic view of the kingdom. Be humble, rely on God, have an inner experience with God, get in touch with your spiritual side. And this is not incorrect. The kingdom of God is about changed hearts and humility and experiencing the love of Jesus. But that's not all that it is. If the kingdom is only about experience, there's no Jesus The kingdom is not just an experience or even an experience with Jesus. It's also a message about who He is, what He's done, and what He demands. And so it can't just be this internal experience thing, this Eckhart Tolle thing. I don't know if you know who that Yahoo is, but it can't. It's not just this. It's the inner divine light or this weird perspective that we have. Everyone's spiritual today. Have you ever noticed that? Everyone is spiritual today in some way, shape, or form. And you know what? When you start talking about the kingdom in terms of it being experiential, that's where you land if you don't balance it with the other two perspectives. And this brings us to the third view, the eschatological view. Eschatological simply means last things. According to this view, the kingdom of God ushers in the reign of God and brings us out of this present evil age and into the age to come. The kingdom means that the king has come to, or the kingdom means that the king has come to finally vanquish his foes and to save his people. The goats will be separated from the sheep. Those who believe in Jesus will be saved. Those who reject him stand condemned. This is the conservative evangelical view. And it's right. As much as liberals and emergent folks don't like it, the kingdom is about who's in and who's out. It really is. As much as we don't like that, it really is about that, friends. It's about who submits to the king and his rule and who doesn't. But that's not all that the kingdom is about. It's also about heart transformation and living out righteousness and justice. So the short way of describing the kingdom is to call it the reign and rule of God. The long way to say it is that the kingdom is about God having sway over our society, our hearts, and our allegiance. But this raises another question. Is the kingdom present? Or future? Is it here or are we waiting for it to arrive? The answer is yes, both. The kingdom of God is present and future. It is here and it has not yet arrived. I know it's like a paradox. But until you understand this, with what the, caller, the scholars actually call this, they have a phrase for this, they call it the already and the not yet of the kingdom. If you don't understand the already and the not yet, you won't understand the Gospels or Revelation or most of the New Testament. You just won't. Let me give you a couple illustrations to kind of draw this out. I'll read two verses which illustrate this tension of it's here and it's coming because we see that in Scripture. Uh, Matthew four seventeen. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's he saying? It's here, it's at hand, it's before us. It is similar to Luke 17, where the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom will come. And he replied, the kingdom of God is among you. With the coming of Jesus Christ, especially in his death and resurrection, the kingdom has come. This is why Jesus could say that the kingdom is at hand. But here's the second verse that kind of brings in some tension. Matthew 6.10, the Lord's Prayer. What does he say? He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here it's like, okay, um, bring your kingdom, God. And that we should pray that God would bring his kingdom. 
that he would expedite that process, that he would expedite his process in bringing his will on earth. And the fact of the matter is, God's kingdom is only in its fullest sense where his will is fully done. Now, I want you to picture a couple of diagrams in your head. This helps to draw it out again. This was the Jewish mindset. You have two ages, this age and the age to come. This present age is evil. And the age to come is where the Messiah comes and he reigns and he, his enemies are destroyed and there is peace and righteousness. They saw this as a straight line. Sinful age, and then when the Messiah comes, it's now the messianic age. It's now the perfect age. It's now the kingdom age. That's the way that they saw it, a straight line. It starts here, and then it ends here, and it becomes this. That's the way the Jewish mind works. It even works today. But that's not how Jesus explained it, which is part of the reason why they rejected him as their Messiah. Not all Jews in that day rejected him, but many, many did. Many more rejected them than received him. Jesus taught that his arrival was the inbreaking of the age to come and that the present age would be overlapped. It would be overlapped by the messianic age, by the kingdom age, until he returned in glory. And that's where it fully shifts into the kingdom age. But Jesus said, it doesn't stop with me coming, and now we begin that kingdom age. He says they overlap. This one continues. This one comes and runs alongside of it, is what Jesus actually taught. Very interesting. The inbreaking of the, or the overlapping kingdom age is actually called the kingdom of God. Every time Jesus referred to kingdom of God, that's what he's talking about. God has broken out on the scene, and, and the kingdom age has begun. But it's overlapping. It's running alongside, to some degree, of the present age. It's really interesting. Now, here's an analogy that might help. The kingdom of God, and this is great. This is, this is what really helped me to get it, because this stuff is, like, perplexing. It's challenging. It's difficult. Eschatology is like, I can't even pronounce it most of the time. The kingdom of God is like election day and inaugura- inauguration day. In this country, the president is elected on the first Tuesday in November, but his presidency doesn't officially begin until January 20. He's basically won. His opponent has been defeated. It's all over the newspapers and on the Internet. The whole country is preparing for the transition, right? This is what happens after election. The winner starts forming his cabinet and putting together his administration. The new era has essentially begun. But on the other hand, it hasn't to some degree. In one sense, we live in the time between the election and the inauguration. The king has come and won, but his inauguration hasn't taken place yet. That happens when he returns in glory and defeats his enemies, and now the kingdom age essentially begins. Our president, Jesus, has been elected. And now we're waiting for the inauguration. And guess what? It's all climbing and growing to that. We're drawing, I think we're in the, in the end times. I think we can look at the seasons and look at the world and how things are going. The scriptures say that. But that's what we're awaiting. He's been elected, so to speak, by the sovereign hand of God, not by our choosing him to be our king. And at some point, he will take his office fully. But right now, it's all preparatory. Do you get that? Do you see how it works? Christ has defeated sin and Satan and death. And therefore, it is appropriate to talk about Christ as king. That's what he did on Calvary. He defeated Satan. He won his office, so to speak. Now, 
we're supposed to go out and tell people about this news. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is absolutely the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it's also about how the king won the victory and he's coming to take his throne and to establish his kingdom forever. Now, we do know that opposition to the king is still very strong in this world, right? Even though Jesus came 2,000 years ago and established his office, which is overlapping with the present age, opposition to the king is still very strong, isn't it? Not? When a new president gets elected and he's waiting to be inaugurated, isn't there a lot of chatter on Rush Limbaugh and on everything else out there? Opposition, opposition, opposition. Well, that's much like what's happening in this world. There's much opposition to the king that's coming. In fact, most people have no concept of him coming. They have no clue that he's coming. But there's still opposition in sin and depravity. But So when you boil it down, it's like this. Jesus is the already but not yet king. And it is the same way when it comes to our salvation to some degree. Our salvation works in a similar way. Your life is not a straight line with a clean break between the old self and new self, is it? In a spiritual sense it is, but you still have flesh. The old self remains to some degree, does it not? Why do we keep sinning? Why do we keep doing all these things? Christ saved us, but we still keep doing these things. We keep messing up. And that old self will stay with you until you pass into the Lord's presence for all eternity or until he returns, whichever comes first. We do not go from the old sinful self to the new perfectly holy self in the flesh at the moment of our conversion. There is a sanctifying process that lasts your whole life. And that process comes to an end when you breathe your last earthly breath. And at that point, the old self is forever vanquished and you are made perfectly holy and forever established in perfect holiness in the presence of the Lord. It's, it's just very similar to how the kingdom of God works. We're saved, but we still wrestle with flesh. Jesus came and won the victory, but we're still dealing with a sinful age. You see how it works? It's very similar with ourselves. As a Christian, we're already holy and not yet holy and becoming holy. And the kingdom of God is already here and not yet here and getting here. Until we understand those sequences, we will not understand how the gospel and the kingdom of God work. We need to know that there is a sequence to how things work. And that really is the kingdom. It is the place and rule and reign of God Almighty. And on earth, it's not, it hasn't been fully set yet. And it is coming. There is an appointed time where he will come and do that. But the kingdom is happening now to some degree in the lives of his people, in his church, right? We're living submitted to the king of his kingdom. That's how Christians are to live. So you can kind of get an idea of how it all works. It's confusing, I think, a little bit. But if we know that the kingdom is here and it's not fully here, but it will be in the future, that is the best perspective that we could have because that's the truth of Scripture and that's what Scripture teaches. Now, these things were so incredibly perplexing for the disciples because they were Jewish. And, and they saw the present age and the age to come as a straight line. They wanted so badly for Jesus to dethrone the Romans and the, the Herodians or Herodians and to set up his earthly reign, did they not? That's what they wanted. That's why they kept asking him questions like, when's it going to happen? When are you going to kick their butts? And drive them out of here and establish, you know, your... When are you going to bring the kingdom back to Israel like the old days with David? When are you going to do that? They had that straight-line mindset. They were expecting 
the, the, the kingdom to begin when Jesus came and he destroys all the evil and it all begins good. That's the way that they saw it. And so they wrestled with this so bad. And so what does he do? For three years, he teaches them about the kingdom of God. And then for the last 40 days um, before his ascension, he teaches them about it again. He's trying to tell them, guys, it's here. It's not fully here, but it will be in the future when I return. This is what he's teaching them over and over and over. This is why he labored so intensively. He wanted these truths to be as plain as I've just said them to you. It's here, it's not fully here, and it's coming. And he labored intensively for 40 days to teach them this, all the way up to the point of his ascension. Now, what's amazing is just before Jesus was taken up and ascended, he worked another miracle by opening their minds so that they could understand what he had taught them. It says this in the scriptures in Luke 24, 45. Even at the point that he's about to zoom off, okay, they still don't get it. Oh. I mean, he's still doing everything that he can to convince them to give them the truth, to open their minds to Scripture, to have them understand His commands, to obey those commands, to understand the kingdom and how it works and how it's this, this, and this. It's here, not fully, but will be. This is what He did over and over and over. Then He finally works a miracle in the end, right before He ascends and opens their minds to the Scriptures. All of the things that He taught and all of the things that the prophets taught in the Old Testament all just comes to the surface and to light for them. And I think they finally get it. It finally clicks. We definitely see that after the day of Pentecost. But the fourth and final thing that Jesus did to prepare his disciples was he ordered them to wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit came. Verses 4 and 5. This was a command that Jesus gave here. It's like, don't leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. There's a, it's, a, it's an imperative. It's a command. It's not, it'd be better... If you guys hung out, that would be most beneficial for you and for the world. No, he's saying, stay, don't go, don't leave. Stay here until the promise of my Father comes, the Holy Spirit. So he commands that they stay. It's an imperative. And the Spirit did come 10 days later at the day of Pentecost. When the Spirit came, as I said earlier, he blew like a rushing wind into the room where the church was gathered. And then he immersed himself into each of the believers. The Bible calls this action the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus taught about this in John 14, 16 to 17. He said, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. He's referring to the Holy Spirit. To be with you forever. The Spirit will dwell with you and will be in you. Now this teaching had to be perplexing to these men. As Jews, they would have been familiar with how the Holy Spirit worked to to a great degree, but what would have been surprising is the notion that the Spirit would be in them forever. As I said earlier, this is a foreign concept. The Holy Spirit would come and anoint, get the task done. King David would do his reign, or Saul would do his thing for a little while, or Jehu the king, or, you know, uh, Jephthah, one of the judges. I mean, the, the Spirit would come and anoint these guys temporarily until they got the job done, or until, like Saul, they sinned and blew it, and then God would draw His Spirit from them. So this whole thing to them is a temporary thing. The Spirit is a temporary thing. He comes, He goes, He moves, He's free. He's in Fred. He's not in Fred this day. He's in Phil this day. He's not, obviously, look what Phil's doing. He's, you know what I mean? It's like, it just, He's moving. He's moving. And so their mind would have been like, what? He's going to come to be with us forever? And did you say He's going to be in us? Hmm, that's interesting. 
But things changed at the day of Pentecost, just as Jesus said they would. Even though these men may have been perplexed by Jesus saying, the Spirit will come upon you and remain in you, it all changed at the day of Pentecost. I mean, that's the moment where they really got it and they understood how the Spirit works because these men were filled with the Spirit nonstop. The Spirit's presence shifted from temporary to permanent. And the Bible teaches that every person that repents of their sin and receives Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior becomes permanently immersed. Is what baptism means. It means to be immersed. They become permanently immersed and dwelt or baptized by the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38, the Spirit comes and He indwells the life of the believer and He never departs. There are times where He doesn't seem present because of our sin and obstinance or whatever it is, but He's there. He doesn't leave. He doesn't vanish. He stays. He's not going to stay with you until you can get this task done and then He's gone and life just is lame. He comes and He resides forevermore. He remains is what He does. He does that in the life of every believer. That is the biggest miracle of Pentecost, is how the Holy Spirit came in a completely different way from every, every century before that. He comes and He lives in you and He remains in you. It's amazing. It's a miracle. From that moment on when the Spirit comes into that repented life, that life that's trusting in Jesus as their as their Lord and Savior. From that moment on, life begins to change because the Holy Spirit becomes that new believer's guide, teacher, disciplinarian, and source of divine power. When the Spirit comes, there's power, there's instruction, there's the ability to understand and comprehend the Word. There is is the power to obey the Word and to carry out His Word and to proclaim the Gospel and to share the Gospel in life with others and all these things that the Spirit brings. Life changes. Our, our, our views of things change. We don't see the world the same anymore. Our worldview changes the way that we see sin and things. I remember the first thing I did when I got saved, I threw away about 300 DVDs. I, if I had access to the can, I'd go get them back now because I understand my liberty that I have in Christ. Not that everyone needs to watch Pulp Fiction. But when I got saved, it was such a dramatic thing that I looked at my life and I immediately hated sin. It repulsed me. And when I sinned, I I was repulsed at myself. But I opened my cabinet and looked and I had about 300 DVDs in there. and Most of them were just crap. And so guess what I did? I threw them away in complete joy. And I went and deleted all the bad music and threw it away. Back then it was iTunes 1 or whatever. I mean, you know, it was like typewriter. But, I mean, literally, I I just, I didn't want to be around the filth anymore, man. There was a dramatic difference in my life when the Spirit came. He was guiding me. He was leading me. He gave me new convictions. I hated sin. I still hate sin. I hate it more now than I ever have. Especially when I do it and I hurt others. I hurt my family. I hurt myself. But there is such a dynamic change when the Spirit comes and invades a life, when He marks you with the seal of salvation, with His seal of presence. It's just amazing what happens. And, 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 And by God's plan, that was to take place from the day of Pentecost on. Now, Jesus understood all this stuff. And He knew that in order for the disciples to be His witnesses through preaching the gospel in power and by performing miracles and by planting churches in the Mediterranean region and beyond, they would have to be baptized and led by the Holy Spirit. This is why He commanded that they stay in Jerusalem until the Spirit came. So often in life, it seems like even though we're indwelt by the Spirit, we don't wait to do things. We don't wait for His instruction 
on what to do, and then we go out without Him seemingly, and we make a real big flippin' mess of things, don't we? Can you imagine if these guys who were very timid and they were like little frightened chihuahuas, I mean, before the day of Pentecost, yeah, they were getting it better, but to some degree they were still like not certain. They didn't have that that gumsha and that gospel gumsha that comes through the Spirit. Can you imagine if they would have went out and tried to do ministry before the Spirit came on them? If they were trying to do it through maybe a temporary anointing or whatever? Can you imagine what would have happened? No, when we look at the book of Acts, they waited, they obeyed what Jesus said. The Spirit came, anointed them permanently, and they went out and did the most amazing things. Peter preaches, 3,000 people are saved and baptized. Churches are planted throughout all of Mesopotamia and the Mediterranean through Paul. Things happen. All of Ephesus. Paul comes to Ephesus. There's nothing happening there but a bunch of idolatry. All this weird crap. They're saying stuff. It's weird. They're banging drums. I mean, it's just weird, right? Like maybe when you walk up a tribe, you know, walk up on a tribe in Africa, you're like, huh? Right? They're just doing weird stuff. And, 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 and that's what's happening in Ephesus. And then Paul comes and he begins to proclaim the gospel. And guess what happens? Peace descended upon the, the town. No, it didn't. The whole stinking place turned into an uproar. That's what the gospel does when it's preached in power. It turns people's lives upside down because it points out their sin. And it gives them hope in Jesus. It doesn't just say, you suck and you're a sinner and you're going to perish. And you need, It says, you need Jesus. And you need to believe is what the gospel does. And so Paul comes with that message. And what happens? All of Ephesus is, it becomes in an uproar. There are riots. Have we ever had a riot in our community over the gospel? Not yet. <laughs> Can you imagine? What would that look like? I don't know. It'd be freaky, right? The gospel turns people's lives upside down, man. It did mine. Whoa. That's what it does. But it's by the grace of God that people are able to hear it. And it's by the extraordinary grace of God that people are able to receive it and to be saved and transformed and delivered from this current evil age. Man, these guys, they listened to Jesus, they obeyed, temporary anointing, they get through Pentecost, and they come out on the scene, and the whole stinking world is turned on its head, literally. In that region it was. Just read through the book of Acts and look at what happened in Ephesus and Philippi and all these different cities. Wow. The gospel is amazing. And the gospel is 10 billion times more powerful when the spirit-filled and spirit-led Christian goes out and proclaims it. Because it's almost like we neuter it of some of its power when we go out and we're not in the spirit and we're not filled with the spirit in those moments and we're, our sins haven't been dealt with and, and, and you know, we aren't equipped and, and ready in those moments to go out and deliver. And there's a whole bunch of that happening in the church today where it's just not proclaimed in power because men are in sin and things are happening and it's just terrible. But look what happened in Acts. These guys waited, they were permanently anointed, and they went out on the scene, and the world was turned on its head, man. You want to see a great example of how the world was turned on its head? Look at the reign of Constantine. I don't know if that guy was a real believer. There was some weirdness about all that. But let me tell you, to get the Roman Empire, which was staunchly against the gospel, to get it to accept and embrace and call the cross its kind of national thing, 
several hundred years later, wow, that's a miracle. And it's because these men went out filled with the Holy Spirit and proclaimed the gospel in power, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And things happen, man. Unbelievable. What have we learned this morning? We've learned that Jesus did several key things to prepare his disciples before sending them out into the world to be his witnesses. And we know that he did some key things in that last 40 days, but he also spent three years, a little over three years or so, or give or take with them, training them and proclaiming to them and working with them and loving on them and encouraging them and exhorting them and rebuking them. And I mean, he did a lot of, he did a lot of stuff over that long period of time, especially in the last couple of weeks, man. He really, last month, he really, really worked to get them to the place that they needed to be. And he, what did he do? He gave them commands through the Holy Spirit, he presented himself alive to them by many proofs for 40 days. He taught them about the kingdom of God. It's here, guys. When I came, it entered onto the scene. I brought it with me. But it's not fully here yet, but it will be. He commanded that they stay in Jerusalem until the promised Holy Spirit came so that they would be indwelt once and for all with the power of God to go out and do the ministry well in a way that honors God and benefits humanity. Now, how does all this apply to us? I'm confident that the Holy Spirit has said a few things to you and given you his own applications. You know, I don't often like it when preachers tell us how to think and what we need to apply and all that, but I think he's spoken to every one of us to some degree, but I have a couple of things that I'd like to point out, that I'd like to add. You know, we're a new church. <laughs> we're brand spanking new. We still got the price tag on us. Got the blood of Jesus right on that price tag. We've met how many times now? This is five or six? Five? Ah! We met five times. Well, we're really rolling now. If, if we are going to be Jesus' witnesses in the world, which is exactly what the church has been called to do, mind you, we must know, receive, and obey the commands found in Scripture. This is absolutely essential Ignorance, rejection, and obstinateness towards God's word destroys not only the gospel ministry, but it destroys churchmen and churches. Jesus gave these men commands, and he gave them the power to obey them. He does the same thing for us. We must obey what Christ has called us to do. We must obey the commands that are found in Scripture, or we're not going to be good witnesses in the world. We're not going to be good husbands. We're not going to be good friends. We're not going to be good anything to anyone. And we're certainly not going to be good for God in this world as far as the gospel goes and as far as God's glory goes. J.C. Ryle touched on this. I think it's in your outline. I love this quote. He said, An ignorant congregation will always be a source of nothing but trouble to a church. A Bible-reading congregation may save a church from ruin. And right there, I take that to mean from a pastor who is ruining the church. Because sometimes the congregation knows the word better than the pastor does. We've just got some idiots in pulpits, guys. I'm sorry. We do. 
He says, let us read the Bible regularly, daily, and with fervent prayer and become familiar with its contents. Let us receive nothing, believe nothing, and follow nothing which is not in the Bible, nor can be proved by the Bible. Let our rule of faith, the touchstone of all our teaching, be the written word of God. Jesus gave him commands. He gave him the power to obey. He's given us commands, and he's given us the power to obey through a permanent anointing of the Holy Spirit. We must obey the Word of God. We have to. Now, I get it. When we blow it, when we fail, grace is there. But the Christian should never really... The true Christian should not have that whole desire to not obey God's Word. The true Christian should not. It's an oxymoron. I mean, it's the, it's, it's, it's the antithesis of what a Christian is to be. The greatest joy of the Christian is to obey the Father. That's what we desire. That's the true heart of the true Christian. And so we must desire to obey the Word. We must then obey it. We must apply it. We must live out the Word of God, live out the commands of Christ. That's what it takes to be a faithful witness, a good witness in this world. This is the very same thing that he taught the disciples. Paul read it earlier, obey my commands. Well, I don't have to obey the commands, you know, because of grace. Guess what? If you think that, you're not a Christian. Your heart's desire as a true Christian is to obey what God has said. It's your, it's your highest goal. You long to obey If we are going to be Jesus' witnesses in the world, we must be settled on who Jesus is, on what He's done, and on what He's going to do. We must believe what the Bible says about Him, not what the Koran says, not what the Book of Mormon says, not what the New World Translation that the Jehovah's Witnesses use, not what Shintoism or any other Shinto religion, whatever it is, we must believe and accept and apply what the Bible says about Jesus. It must be a done deal. He's God. He's everlasting. He's the one and only sent Messiah to this whole world. There's no other, no one can get saved apart from Christ. It's only in Him. We must believe. We must be, it, we must be resolute about that. I mean, how can you go out and proclaim the gospel when you're uncertain about who Jesus is and what He did and and I'm talk, when I say what he did, I'm talking about just the gospel. I'm talking about living the perfect life, dying on the cross, being buried for three days, rising again. I'm talking about that stuff, ascending to the throne of God. Just the basic, fundamental, foundational things of Christianity. We must have those things fixed. We cannot be swayed. You want to destroy a church? Just screw up those foundational doctrines. When you start to play with who Jesus is, when you start to screw around with that and modify and mess with that, you have ceased to be a true church. It's over. Your lampstand is gone. It's not being threatened. God just, poof, you're done. What kind of witness can we be if we're not certain about who Jesus is? And you know what? It's okay if, if, if there are aspects of who he is and what he's done that we don't have full, full comprehension of. What do you think the purpose in Bible teaching is? 
an exposition in those things. That's why we're here. That's why we're gathered to learn more about who he is, to apply more of who he is and what he's done to our lives so that we can what? Go out and be good, faithful witnesses of his. But it's, it's got to be a settled matter, you guys. And I think for the majority of you it is, but some of you out here are like, it's not a settled matter. I haven't received him as Lord and Savior. I, I, I don't want to. Or I'm not sure what that means, and I need to talk to somebody about that. Boy, if that's who you are, man, the grace of God's all over you like a cheap suit. We, it's got to be a settled matter. We get the gospel. We get Jesus. We're not going to play around with his deity. We're not going to screw around with that stuff. He's who he said he is. I am. It's got to be a fixed thing. And, and I say this, and you might be thinking, why is he beating that like a, a dead horse? Because we get it. No, I, I don't think we do at times. There are definitely sections of the Christian church or the wannabe Christian church that don't get it. You just drive down, just drive down the road over here, and on one side you've got a church where they have a lesbian pastor, and on the other side you've got a, a Mormon deacon leading it. I don't think either of those churches get it. They don't. And what are they doing? They're screwing up the gospel. That's not to say that God doesn't love those people in there and want to save. That's not to say that. But this is a critical thing in the church, guys. It's a critical thing in the church. We've got to be fixed on who Jesus is. We've got to obey those commands. Or we're not going to be witnesses. We're not going to be worth beans witnesses in this world at all. He said who he is. We study the scriptures to learn that. We apply that, and that's what we proclaim. We don't look to the left or to the right. We're fixed. It's done. We're going to be witnesses, Jesus' witnesses in the world. We must understand the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where God rules and reigns. The kingdom of God was brought to our world by Jesus, and it has remained here through God's children. But the kingdom of God is not fully here yet, but it will be in the future. That's the kingdom. And let me add this, the church is not building the kingdom of God. So whenever you hear a pastor say, come with us as we work on the kingdom of God, as we build the kingdom of God together, that is a false theology. The church isn't even building itself. What did Christ say? I will build my church and nothing, the gates of Hades shall not prevail. The church is not building itself. Jesus is building the church. Therefore, we're not building the kingdom, you guys. God is fashioning his kingdom. And how is he fashioning his kingdom in this age? He's saving souls. And those people are residents of his kingdom. Now, under his reign and rule, and will be when he returns. But the church is not building the kingdom of God. We are not, we are not co-constructors in the kingdom, friends. Building the kingdom is God's work. Building the church is God's work. The beauty of it is, is that by His grace, we get to be involved in it. We're not building it and constructing it, and we're certainly not the architect, but in a way, we're workers in it. And what do we do? We proclaim the gospel, and it's through the gospel that God brings the kingdom here to a further degree. Every time someone repents of their sins and trusts in Jesus Christ, the kingdom draws closer. Every soul that's saved, the kingdom draws closer. And at some point, it'll fully burst out on the scene. Have you ever read, like, Revelations 20? Read Revelations 19, 20, 21 up in there, and look at what... The Word of God says about the kingdom, especially about the everlasting kingdom that will come after the millennial reign of Christ. 
Wow. A whole new world. All new heaven. New Jerusalem. Big old stinking box. <laughs> it's like a big Rubik's Cube. I, it's just cool, man, what it says. And that's all to come. And then when that comes, it's done. Forever. We've got to get the kingdom right. We're not constructors. We're residents. And we're to live as residents submitted to the king of his kingdom. That's what we're called to do. But we are not constructors. It's an awful lot of talk in pulpits today. We're building the kingdom of God. Come on over here. Get your tool belt on. It's like God's work. Stop it. Just tell him to preach the gospel. And God does it all. He does it through that. That's what we get to be a part of. We preach the gospel and he works through that. Do we have a role? Yeah. If we're going to be Jesus' witnesses in the world, this is the last one, we must be baptized by the Holy Spirit through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And we must be daily led by the Spirit as well. How many people are out there trying to do gospel work and the Spirit's not on them because they get the gospel wrong and all? I just mentioned two churches over there. You can't do anything for God or with God apart from the Spirit, apart from facing your mortality and facing your reality. I am a sinner. I know it. You can't, there's no, I mean, that's the beginning of all things with God. You've got to realize you're a sinner. Do you lie? Yeah, guess what? You'll pay a price for that. I mean, just look at the Ten Commandments. It, it begins there. I'm a sinner, and my sin separates me from God. And Christ came. He broke the kingdom into this world. He lived a perfect life, the life that I could never live in perfect obedience to God's word or to God's rule, to God's commands, to the Ten Commandments. He lived all that perfectly, and He did that because I couldn't. And then He took all my sin and junk and depravity and all the garbage of my life, and He took it upon Himself on that cross. He died a horrible death. Blood beaten, battered, crown of thorns, and he died, and then he was buried, and then he rose, and you got to get that right. Okay, that's what he did for me, and I need to repent of my sin, acknowledge it before a holy God. I'm a sinner, man. Oh, look at these things that I've done. And then you, you cry out, you fling yourself at the mercy throne of God and beg for a pardon in Christ. You don't pray some weird prayer, oh, come into my heart. Jesus doesn't even come into our hearts. It's the Holy Spirit that does. I hate that. Invite the Lord into your heart. He doesn't come into your heart. It's the Holy Spirit that does. There's a difference. You just throw yourself at the, at the mercy seat of God and say, I'm a wicked sinner. Forgive me of my sin. I trust in Jesus. It's, that's the gospel. The Holy Spirit comes and fills you and your life changes. It's an amazing thing. That's a starting point. How are you going to go out and be a witness without first, in, first engaging your soul and your sin in the gospel, the good news, the King came for you? Pretty cool. And then to be daily led by the Holy Spirit. You know, 
just because we're indwelt by the Spirit doesn't mean that we don't stifle the Spirit at times with our decisions and the things that we do. You know, Christians need to bring themselves before the mercy throne of God just as an unsaved sinner does. I mean, we need to come to the mercy seat of God every day and bring our sin before Him and acknowledge that and submit to Him humbly and ask for a fresh, 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 fresh filling of the Holy Spirit that we may be good witnesses in the world. We need to be led by the Holy Spirit. It seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? You know what? It's not a no-brainer in the church today. That's what's so sad. Oh, this is just Christianity 101. You're right, it is. And we think we're on Christianity 106 in the church, and we're minus 50. We just, we just don't, we've lost our way in the church to some degree. It's, it's just about divine therapy now. That's what's happening in the church. Just look, just see, you've all been to churches. We need the Spirit so badly. Man, I, I pray that there would never be a moment that the Spirit is not all over us here. That we are always filled and led by the Holy Spirit. That everything that we do would be through Him and through His power. Man, that's my, that's my heart plea. I don't want to do anything apart from Him. And guess what? Your pastor does a lot apart from Him at times. Just ask my wife. <laughs> Toilet flush. How much time do I spend doing stupid junk out of the Spirit? Way too much. 2,000 years ago, Jesus prepared His disciples to be His witnesses in the world. He's been doing that same thing throughout all the prior centuries, and He's doing it today. The church is the vehicle that Jesus uses to proclaim the gospel to train people for the ministry of the gospel and to send people out to share the gospel. That's the church's commission. That's our commission. It's our responsibility as a church. May we humbly submit to our Savior, King, Lord, High Priest and Teacher, Jesus Christ. And may we be sensitive and attentive to our gracious guide, the Holy Spirit, as He leads us away from this place and out into our community, out into our world, after we leave here, to be His witnesses. I'd like to um, kind of close this time of teaching with an opportunity for us to really just get alone with Christ in this beautiful moment that he's given us to reflect upon what he did on Calvary for us. The, the more that we reflect upon that, the more that our salvation is made certain, the more that we are changed, the more that we are transformed, the more that we are guarded against works righteousness and trying to earn our way with God. I always say this, we need to reflect upon the cross as much as we can on what he did on, in the gospel. So let's take a moment to celebrate communion together and just to maybe just spend a few moments just asking Christ to search our hearts, to bring some things to the surface that we may recognize and repent of, and then let's just drink deeply of the ocean of God's grace.
through taking those elements. And I have to warn you, if you're not in Christ, do not do it. This is something that only God's children can do. It's only something that those who have repented of their sin and placed their faith and trust in Jesus are to do. The Bible says that if you were to do those things in a way that is unworthy of what Christ has laid out, you will be judged for that. And so if you're not in Christ, please just sit back and maybe pray that Christ would reveal himself to you in a greater way. But let's take this moment just to reflect on maybe what we've heard and more importantly, to reflect upon what was done on that cross for us. And just to spend some time with Jesus. Okay, guys? Let's go ahead and do that. I'll pray. Father, I can't think of a better way to end every church service, and that would be through communion, which basically causes us to, to reflect upon what you did on Calvary, on that cross, where you took our sin upon you, our shame, our guilt, our condemnation, our judgment, and you satisfied the Father in every conceivable way for us. That we could have life in you and through you. And that's really what these elements represent. They represent your body how it was beaten and battered, represent your blood, how it was shed for the remission of sin. May we rejoice in what you've done. May our hope be in what you've done. You have done a marvelous thing for your people. Thank you for this time that we have to be with you. May we enjoy it in your sweet presence. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.